thank you for a huge year on the Words and Nerds podcast. In 2021, the podcast had more than 250 conversations with authors, publishers, agents, booksellers, podcasters, and other amazing bookish people in approximately 200 episodes. There are three spin-offs, Ben Hobson's Burgers, Beers and Books, Josie Layton's A Different Page, and Nathan J. Phillips's The Regular Takeover. We had 22 takeover guests and growing, a summer series takeover, a NaNoWriMo series, crossovers, and the incredibly popular Publishing Insider series. The podcast appeared at literary festivals. We hosted live streams at bookshops for book launches, including the much-loved Four Continents for Critics. This holiday series is all about you, the listeners. Enjoy the most listened-to episodes of 2021 to get you through the holiday period. Stay safe and read more books. Danny, Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction went, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I can edit that bit out. I can do this, and I was just so comfortable that I was like, this is special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? We're live now, so welcome to Fremantle Press, a shot in the dark live stream. I love doing these live streams. I'm Danny V, host of Words and Nerds podcast, where I interview authors about their writing and how literature has the power to change the world. If you have a question for us, if you're watching live or something you'd like to share or anything you'd like to say to us, please put it in the comments and I'll try my very best to get to it throughout this discussion tonight. Now, I'm really super excited. You can see her on the screen for yourselves, but I'm interviewing Zoe DeLule about her compelling novel with one of the most beautiful covers I've seen this year, The Night Village. Zoe was born in Perth and studied communications at Murdoch University. She moved to London um, working as a magazine sub-editor for the BBC before completing a master's in creative writing. And the Night Village was shortlisted for the City of Fremantle TAG Hungerford Awards back in 2018. Welcome to A Shot in the Dark. You're beaming all the way from Germany, which is pretty cool. Zoe Delul. 
Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, I love how this is going live, Fremantle Press, as we know, in beautiful Perth. I'm in Sydney. We love Sydney. I'm in lockdown for another four weeks. We won't talk about that. And you are all the way from Germany. So I just love how technology has been able to bring us together. And I think yeah. with all the lockdowns that we've all experienced in different forms and shapes, it's amazing that we can connect like this. So very yeah. grateful that we were able to do that. How are you, Zoe? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. <laughs> it's 11 a.m. We are. It's a reasonable, reasonable hour of the day. Yep. I've um I've been up for a while. I've I've prepared my questions I've been for a walk to try and calm down <laughs> well I hate to shock you but I rarely stick to the questions so <laughs> that's probably good <laughs> really bad habit of mine I write them and I don't read any of them but we will start off with a pretty comfortable question a question that I ask mm -hmm. all the guests first up just to start us off can you give us an elevator pitch as to what the night village is about and I'm going to hold it up again because it's so pretty yeah Sure. So the Night Village, um, it opens with my main character, Simone. She's in a hospital in London and she's having her first baby with um, her boyfriend, Paul. She doesn't actually know him that well um, and she is quite kind of shocked by the whole situation. It wasn't something that she planned. Um, she goes home the next day to his apartment at the Barbican and um, just has to get on with her life as a new mum. With not a lot of family support because they're obviously all back in Perth. Um, and then about two weeks after that, Paul's cousin Rachel calls and she wants to come and stay. And Simone kind of thinks, oh, okay, you know, I can't really complain because this isn't really my house. So Rachel comes to stay the next day. And as soon as she comes, Simone kind of feels on edge. She doesn't really know why, but she just kind of, there's something about Rachel that kind of makes her feel anxious um, and as the novel goes on we kind of see Simone becoming more and more tired and we never really know if, if it's her paranoia and her kind of um, own thoughts or if there is something going on and then by the end of the novel we, we've kind of found out and I guess I would say that Simone is in a very different place from where she started. That's a great elevator pitch. And look, yes, I felt uncomfortable about Rachel being there too, but <laughs> so you did yeah. a great job in bringing that. <laughs> now, there was something that really struck me about this book, and it was the honest, often brutal side of childbirth and the trauma that can follow afterwards. Why was this important mm. for you to explore in this book? I think I think it was probably that um, before you have children, you only really see childbirth depicted in movies and it's very quick. It's usually kind of a bit of screaming and then it's over. <laughs> and but the then, protagonist always is still looking quite beautiful, sweaty. Yeah, and she's sweaty. makeup on, the hair's nice, it's kind of fine. And same in kind of, you know, um, nappy commercials and all of that. It's all very kind of sanitised, but it's actually not really like that. And then when you kind of cross over, it's like you start hearing the true stories and you realise that, I mean, I kind of realised just talking to a lot of women that they're left, often left quite traumatised by the birth. Um, they feel like they weren't given the pain relief that they wanted or um, they weren't given the support and they feel kind of like they've failed in some way, but um, it's not really something you can dwell on because you kind of have to get on with looking after this baby. So I kind of thought, well, maybe it's a story there. I don't really know what else to write about because I was looking after two small children, but I thought maybe that is, you know, maybe there's a novel there. There's a lot of chat about it online and stuff, 
you know, you see a lot of anonymous stories online. And so I just thought maybe I'll just try and write about it. And it was so refreshing to read it was because, and I think it's a reference in, in the book as well, about her baby book. She said, I might donate or I might just chuck it in the bin because it'll save yeah. someone from seeing all these unrealistic expectations. And it is because, you know, people want to hear about, you know, the good things, which is great. And they want to hold the beautiful baby, which again, fantastic. But I still feel even now that the trauma or the difficulty or the challenges you have, not only having a baby, but the things that follow afterwards, mm. it's almost like they're a taboo subject. And, you know, yeah. I know post birth, when I had my children, there was, you know, I had a lot of things going on in terms of, you know, post natal anxiety but it was you felt really alone because even though people talk about it it still doesn't feel like it's a topic you can freely express I guess until you're you're through it would you agree with that yeah I don't think it is I don't think that it's talked about I think partly because a lot of women well some women do have a great experience and they find it easy which is wonderful and it should be like that for everyone but I think if you don't feel like that you don't really kind of know how to bring it up sometimes um and maybe there's kind of an expectation. There's, I think there's often a kind of attitude that, well, you've got a healthy baby, so what are you worried about? It's like, well, true, and, of course, that is the most important thing, but it's also, I think, it does leave a lot of women feeling really traumatised and very anxious, like you say. Um, and it was funny, yesterday I was looking at these questions and I was thinking about and I Googled birth trauma because I hadn't really thought about it being about birth trauma. And there is actually a birth trauma association now in Australia, but it's only been set up in 2016. Wow. Yeah. So it's quite a new thing to even be talking about this. Um, and it's interesting. I do think we've come a long way because we have names for things, you know, postnatal anxiety and depression, and we have that group that you were just talking about. Um, yeah. But I think as well, you almost feel more comfortable talking about it after the fact. Like now I can talk about it with quite, you know, comfortable ease about the challenges I went through post giving birth. But when you are in it, it's yeah. very hard to reach out, I think. And I think that's when you need to reach out the most. Yeah, exactly. But it's hard to because you're so tired and overwhelmed anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Sleep. What is sleep? <laughs> yeah, I just need to get a shower done. I can't go dealing with my mental health as well. <laughs> yeah, and it's really that's dangerous, right? So I'm just so glad that that's why I wanted to bring that up first of all. I'm so glad that this book. I mean, it does many things, but in the beginning, it really sort of touches on that rawness of childbirth and mm. what comes after because I don't think it's talked about enough. No, that's right, and it's kind of I kind of felt like it was a book I would have liked to have read then because it's quite easy to read, it's kind of a page turn and it's got a bit of a thriller, you know, it's kind of, it wasn't too, I mean, it is quite heavy, I guess, but it's also, it's quite nice to be taken out of your own life a bit, I think, and mm. read a book that's completely different from what, you know, your experience. I, I tried to do that too. I loved as well, just, you know, one more point on this, how you talked about the noisy brain. Um, yeah. It was like those 3 a.m. thoughts, you know, when the baby's constantly awake. And, you know, Simone puts it as the noisy brain and those irrational fears. Was that from a personal experience or experience of friends you've known or things that you've read? Because it's very real. Yeah, I think it was kind of me, probably things I read online and probably talking to friends. I don't know where that actual phrase came from. That might have been something that I picked up from somewhere, but it definitely resonated with me. Um, and, yeah, it is that kind of 
inability to switch off after a while when your sleep is so broken that you just think, what's the point in going to sleep? Like, and you just lie there and you know you're going to get woken up. I think, yeah, definitely having sleep taken away from me was a huge shock because I really like my sleep. <laughs> you just need it too. I remember there was a yeah. point I forgot my own name because my son never slept. And I was like, I don't even know my own name. <laughs> That's 3 a.m. I've done a bit of research on the 3 a.m. and it is the most vulnerable time of the human body. So in that three to four a.m. period of time, it's your body physically is the most at its most vulnerable. And then if you're also awake, not having sleep, feeling anxious, you can imagine that space is is quite terrifying. So that really resonated with me as well. There's quite a bit of research on it, which is really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know yeah. that 3 a.m. is when if you've got insomnia, that's when you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. It is a very bad time. You can always message me at 3 a.m. because I'll be awake experiencing <laughs> yeah, it. It will be like 10 o'clock where you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about setting because this setting's great. And I do, I'm going to bring the cover up again because I think it just oh, yeah, the encapsulates this really beautifully. But the yeah. setting of a high-rise apartment, it really added tension to the story, that claustrophobic feeling felt by both the reader and Simone. Tell me about setting. I mean, I know it was set in London, so, you, you know, you're going to yeah. have a different setting anyway. But why was it, why were you driven to set in this high-rise building in a, in a city, which is interesting because it's got a lot of people in it, but that can actually make you feel even more lonely. So talk to me about Yeah, yeah I think... Well, the Barbican is in the financial district, so it's surrounded by office blocks. So she was always looking out to kind of empty offices, which made her feel even more kind of alone. Um, but it's a really interesting development as well because it's got a um, cultural centre in the middle, and whenever you go there, you always see people running in really late for their movie or their show because it's a very disorientating kind of um development it's got really bad signposting it's really dark um so I kind of liked that feeling I thought that feeling of being kind of overwhelmed and lost was really just felt right when I thought of setting it there and then the apartment I think I don't really like being too far off the ground I kind of have a bit of <laughs> vertigo so and it's it's gotten worse since I've had children I don't like balconies like high up balconies so as soon as I kind of set it there I could kind of feel um her mood it was easy to get into her kind of headspace I could picture myself being there and it's also been photographed a lot and I could go back to it you know on google maps or just look up photos or look at um interior apartment shots on real estate websites so it was quite easy to set it there I could kind of get a really clear picture of it even though I was writing in her so it actually worked it was actually really fun to write about Mm, I love that. And just a reminder to our viewers or whoever's managing to tune in wherever you are, if you have anything you'd like to add, a question you'd like to ask Zoe, something you'd like to ask about the book or, you know, just something completely random, just put it in and we'll have a chat to you. That's what's great about these live streams. You can interact as well, but you'll have to interrupt us because we just, you know, keep speaking all the time. <laughs> I will try and take a break from all this, these questions to answer yours or, or say hello to you if you're in the chat. You've lived in London, as we as we talked about before, and, and the book is set there as well. Was there anything else from living in a place that influenced the setting or the piece? Or because it almost becomes when a setting is really important, it almost becomes a character of the novel. Mm. Um, I think I did read a book. There's a book um, by an author called Russell Hoban, which is called Amaryllis Night and Day, 
And that book was basically all about the main character just moving around London. He catches trains, he goes to museums, he goes to, he goes to a lot of pubs. And I thought <laughs> <laughs> it was actually really fun to read just a character moving around the city. Hmm. And I kind of thought that I wanted to kind of use that a little bit, that idea of just moving around the city. And I think with London, like I lived there before I had kids for a long time and I've always felt um, really safe there, I think, compared to Perth. I felt really like there was always people around. There was always night buses that could get me home. And, you know, I grew up in Perth when there was a serial killer on the loose for years. So I never, ever felt safe in Perth at night. And to move to London was just like being in heaven because I just felt so much more kind of comfortable on my own. And then when I had a baby, it just suddenly completely changed. It was like, um, yeah, you just feel like you're walking around with this kind of thing that can go off at any minute. You can start crying. <laughs> You've got to kind of push the pram. I didn't really know how to move it. I just felt so different. And I kind of discovered this whole new kind of map of the city in a way. So I just thought that was kind of a way of moving the story forward as well. I like that. Um, yeah, just kind of taking taking them out onto into London. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, especially feeling, you know, discomfort and, and feeling on edge in a city like that too. I think that really added tension as well because I think you're always so paranoid that you're annoying people with this crying baby, but I think really yeah. no one's really that annoyed about your crying baby. Yeah. I don't even, I mean, I feel a bit sorry if I see a crying baby and I don't kind of, yeah. you just kind of let them get on and pretend you haven't heard. Yeah. But yeah, when it's your baby, you feel like it's just the loudest thing in the whole world. But you just put it to your own kids, you're like, it's okay, they're really noisy, I get it. Don't worry, you're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, you do sometimes get women who kind of give you a bit of a, <laughs> yeah. Now, there's a question in the comments, which I just love. We might have to <laughs> The question is, is, is breastfeeding noir really a new crime genre? And, look, I hope so. I'm here for this. But tell us, what is breastfeeding noir, first of all, before we decide if it's a crime genre? This is actually, I came across this article in the Paris Review. I think it was the Paris Review. And it was someone writing about um, that 80s movie, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Yes. And, yeah, she called it. In this, in this article, Breastfeeding Noir, we should actually link to the, to the article. And I was like, yeah, it's what I'm talking about. It's the middle of the night, you know, the characters are kind of very sleep-deprived and unreliable. So, yeah, I, I think it is free to press. Breastfeeding <laughs> Noir, it's very, it's very cool. And, I, you know, but that's what's so great about crime, right? And I've been speaking about crime a lot and psychological thrillers about why they resonate with people so much and, and, from all the conversations that I've had, we've sort of decided or come to this conclusion that, you know, isn't isn't just set in stone. So please, you know, share your opinion with me. But it just, crime does so much. So not only does it sometimes scare you or make you think or make you sit on the edge of your seat, but it's plot driven. But now mm. with our crime, we really want great characters as well. So it's doing mm. all these things. And then like, you know, breastfeeding noir and all the other sorts of crime <laughs> you've got in there, you know, your hard-boiled and your psychological thriller and your thriller. There are so many genres that within the crime fiction genre that, you know, that you can explore. So I think that's why yeah. crime resonates with people. Why do you think crime resonates with, with others and readers so much? Um, I think... I actually think that if you don't, if you're not into extreme sport and stuff like that, if you like being at home, then a, 
<laughs> a crime thriller can make you feel really frightened, but you're not actually putting yourself in any danger. Interesting. So you know what you like, and it's kind of enjoyable to get scared, but to know that you're not yeah, actually. So you're interesting. Maybe. Are you a thrill seeker, Zoe? No, I don't <laughs> like danger. <laughs> I don't like tall buildings. I don't. I would never go bungee jumping or any of that. But I do like being at home and scaring myself in book. Interesting. I like so that's that. how it works. Yeah. But then, then there's also other people like you know I've been bungee jumping and I also like crime. Have so you? Yes, it appeals to everyone, right? It appeals to the the being. But I, I do take calculated risks. I think you know I, I did yeah. bungee jumping and decided that. You probably were going to be okay. <laughs> I would never do that. That's amazing. So you'd be both. You're very extreme. <laughs> very extreme. <laughs> now, there's another question of the thread. Keep them coming. I love that. Have you written or experimented with any other genres? Um, I did write a kind of more literary novel, which I tried to get published but never got published. And then I. Um, I've written a little bit of poetry. I actually want to go back to poetry a bit. I'm going to do a poetry course in October online. Oh, poetry. Um, short stories, yeah. Short, yeah, I, read, I mean, I write short stories. So I've definitely experimented, but I think that this is obviously the one that worked and I would probably try and write this one again because I really enjoy it. I think, like you say, there is, there is a lot that you can do with crime fiction. Yeah, so much. Um, now, a question for you. Who's your go-to poet? Gosh, I like Liz Berry, um, Pascal Petit. Um, who else do I like? I do like Sylvia Plath. Oh, you are a woman of my own heart. If you were going to ask me that question, Sylvia Plath, every time. Have you heard her reading, her poems on YouTube? No. It's amazing. You hear her voice reading these poems. So if you love Sylvia Plath, even if you don't love Sylvia Plath, I suggest you Google one of her poems and she reads it. It is absolutely amazing real. i'll do that after this just to kind of everyone should do that let's crash the internet listen to sylvia Plath. <laughs> recite her amazing amazing have you read biography the new biography yeah there's amazingly darkness i love it <laughs> yeah. now you just touched on something before we've got another comment from the thread which we'll go to but you just touched on something before which i love to talk about because there's there's honestly such a huge debate about this so i think i want to you know open the can of worms because why not right we're live streaming why wouldn't you open a yeah. can of worms? <laughs> so you talked about writing literary fiction and i guess this is probably more commercial fiction right mm. but then there's this debate about whether the two even exist and how and who judges those things so what to you is a literary piece of work in comparison to a commercial piece of work yeah I don't know I think it, um I think there's much more crossover I mean I, I suppose for me I think of literary as being the language is much more crafted there's a lot more focus on the actual language and it's much more beautiful um, almost more like poetry. Um, but there is a lot more crossover. Like if you think of something like Girl, Woman, Other um, by Bernard and Evaristo, you know, that's very literary, but it was a huge commercial success. So ideally I would have both. <laughs> that's the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, that's the sweet spot. I don't think that, um, yeah, I don't know. It's probably. Isn't it? Because I feel now that a lot of, you know, we'll just call it commercial fiction because that's what people 
mm. do it as. A lot of commercial fiction does deal with those things that literary fiction used to only deal with, you know, exploring those important issues, the reflection of society and life and all mm. those things. And I feel like more and more they're edging closer together, even if maybe the two existed at all. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, it is definitely. And I think also if you think of um, chiclet, I mean, a lot of what we used to call chiclet was actually really beautiful literary fiction, but it just wasn't marketed like that. I mean, I've read books that have a really kind of chiclet cover, but the actual work is literary, but it's just kind of been placed in that box, whereas probably if it hadn't been written by a woman, it might be considered more literary. So I think it's also, I don't know, it's subjective. It's, yeah, it's interesting yeah. Yeah, because I guess then the marketing helps people find your book and helps get readers you know, with their hands on your book. So it's this battle, yeah. isn't it, between... Exactly. To... And you can't really overthink it. I think you just yeah. have to kind of write what you want to write and if it gets put in the commercial box, then... Yeah. And just hope the readers find your work, you know, that the readers... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. in the thread, someone has said, hi, Zoe and Danny, they're really enjoying the chat. Thank you and thank you for being part of it. Um, Zoe, can you tell us your writing practice, routine and processes? Um, my practice is probably just to write in short bursts when I can. I don't have like a kind of eight hours free a day. So I just try and do maybe an hour and then I, I would think about it and come back to it. I think time away is really important. Um, ideas from finished manuscripts. I mean, with this one, it actually started as a short story. Um, I think short stories are a really good way to test out ideas. Um, and test out characters and if you like them you might find the short story can kind of fit into something larger so I think they're probably quite a good way to start it's less intimidating as well yeah I love that but the short story then you've got to go back and obviously do so much filling in so how does that work yeah you just go back and redraft it I think that's I actually like that process of bringing things kind of smoothing things out and and re-editing and reworking it I find that bit actually more fun in some ways than the, than trying to write from nothing. Yeah. I think when you to work with and you can kind of tweak it, it's it's quite um, engaging in a way. Like it's the time passes quickly doing that. Yeah. And so the second part of that question from the thread was how did your how does your idea go from idea to finished manuscript? And I think we sort of touched on that. So this one started as a short story and then you kind of push yeah. it out, trying to put the pieces together and then you come up with what 70 is this seven it's about seventy thousand words this one about 74 in the end yeah oh, but it did close. start as a short story yeah <laughs> it did start as a short story and then when that that was actually published in westerly and then i thought oh well maybe um you know maybe there is something in this maybe i should just keep doing this i didn't really think that kind of childbirth was kind of a necessarily something that you write a whole book about but then once I kind of got that one little I mean you know what it's like in writing if you get any kind of encouragement you just kind of grab it yeah so yeah and you know just touching on that it's a book for all readers like I wouldn't say just because it deals with you know the experience of childbirth that men should keep away from it because I actually think it's really for them to to have that different perspective and it is a crime thriller you know so I think it is everybody as well yeah, Even and I also the breastfeeding noir apparently it is for everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually would like to read a book um, about parenting from a man's point of view as well. I don't think there's enough of them. I don't think there's, you know, I would love to read this kind of story from the yeah. other side too. Yeah, that's well, interesting because you are 
Um, you know, we live our own experiences, but that's what is so rich about reading is that you can dip into other people's experiences and, and have a glimpse of that, you know, different perspective, which I think just makes you you have a richer life, I guess, because you're living your own experience, you know, 99.9% of the time. Yeah, exactly. Someone's chimed in here and I love this because it's the great literary fiction commercial debate, which, you know, love a can of worms. <laughs> and... <laughs> They've said on the on the thread here that it teaches the reader something, literary fiction, uh, whereas commercial fiction um, is for entertainment purposes. And I do agree with that to an extent, I think, but I know that I've read a lot of commercial fiction that I've come out thinking about things as well. I mean, this is the perfect example. You know, I started thinking about the experiences of parenthood and the vulnerability of parenthood and, you know, not so much for me the trauma of childbirth, but the trauma that came afterwards so yeah. I, think, I think that is definitely a way of describing literary and commercial but I think as time goes on and we expect more from our particularly crime fiction I think the two yeah. keep crossing over which is great yeah I think so too and I think I don't know purely entertainment I don't know I don't know if it ever is if I mean maybe there is fiction that is just for entertainment but I yeah, it's not probably stuff. I probably wouldn't seek it out, I don't think. I'd probably always look for a little bit more. Mm, yeah. And look, if you are writing, I mean, we were talking off air about, you know, writing novels and writing picture books and all those things, but there's so much thought put into anything that you write, whether it's a poem or a short story or whatever, that you can't help your context and lived experiences to exist in that text somewhere. Yeah. You know, even if it's small, yeah. even if it's a 250-word picture book or even if it's a, like a 90-word you know, poem, your lived experiences live in those words somewhere, I think. So that's yeah. a nice way. thought, isn't it? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is, definitely. Now, a question uh, from the thread again. I love <laughs> this. It makes my job really easy. I didn't have to think of any questions. When the questions roll in. <laughs> <laughs> when the questions roll in. How do you build and maintain suspense and tension in a novel? And I wanted to ask you that as well. Do you plot these things out and think, okay, I need a bit of tension here, a bit of suspense here, or is it a more organic process for you? I think it was more organic, but I, I mean, when this novel was accepted, I didn't actually think of it as a thriller. I hadn't really, or a psychological suspense, I hadn't kind of placed it in that way. Um, so then when we were editing it with Georgia, she obviously edits a lot of crime fiction. She would very much guide me in that and she would kind of say, you know, I think you need to kind of take what happens at the end and kind of foreshadow it a bit earlier on, you know, find a way of doing that. Or sometimes if there was a scene that was very tense, she would kind of flag it up and say, this is a very important scene, you know, so I think, oh, okay, I have to kind of bring that out more and stuff. So I think it's something that more comes up as you're writing and you've got a draft, then you kind of start thinking about the tension and how to build it. And often it's like just little ideas that will come later and you'll put it in when you remember and stuff. Yeah. I don't think it's something you can plot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how different writers like I've actually spoken to writers who actually plot all the beats and that just blows my mind. I, I mean, I'd love to do that because yeah. no writer's block or no problem, just go into this bit here. But um, I don't know, I find my brain may not work that way. <laughs> no, my brain doesn't work that way. I would like it to as well. Yes, that would be fantastic. <laughs> and you're probably more productive as well, but no, I can't talk about that. Now, it's interesting. I've read some research about creativity. And if you tell your brain, for example, every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., I'm going to write for two hours, 
over a number of weeks, your brain sort of latches onto that and saves mm -hmm. creative juices for that 9 a.m. Saturday morning. Being a parent mm -hmm. of two children, yourself, myself, you know, having full-time jobs and having all these lives that we lead that are often quite busy, sometimes you don't always, aren't always able to carve that time out for yourself. But I wanted to know what, I mean, you said you, you wrote in short bursts. Yeah. Does that work for your creativity or do you have a space? Because I know that a space as well, if you have the same space or writing nook, that can also, you know, give you a bit of creativity. So what works for you? Or have you just had to work around when your two kids allow you to write? Yeah, I mean, I did kind of have a writing, I had a writing room when I was back in Australia. Um, and then the pandemic has come and the kids have been at home for most of last year. So I did get a bit done kind of in short bursts when they were kind of homeschooling and stuff or they did have some time at school. Um, I don't have a writing room at the moment. I'm actually, this is actually my son's bedroom. Um, but, yeah, I would like all of that. I would dream of having like a writing nook and more time. But I think having too much time I don't think would necessarily work for me either. I prefer to have lots of other stuff going on and just have the writing as a real kind of um luxury and a treat when I have time and then I make the most of it and then you do more when you're kind of really busy I think so too because I think I've got 20 minutes I can't waste any time I've got to get yeah. so I think you're absolutely right that you might if you have less time you might use that time more effectively I've heard that a lot from people yeah I think that's true and I think also um I do a lot of copywriting and that's very kind of structured I have to think about what the client wants so for me fiction is just so much more enjoyable. Yeah. So I think having other work and yeah. then seeing the writing is this kind of thing that you just you get to do whatever you want is also really yeah. kind of um, motivating in a way. And you're switching from that sort of left brain, right brain thing. Yeah, and it's something you enjoy. It's not something you think, okay, I've got to sit and write. And, you know, it's something you actually get as a reward when you've done all your other stuff. That's it. Now, with you, two children, pandemic, copywriting in the day, I'm assuming you sleep occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> but it's important as an artist, as a writer, as a creative to fill that creative bucket. And I know a lot of people have had trouble doing this during a pandemic because I know myself, I get creativity from the world, you know, and you get inspired mm -hmm. by the world. How do you feel or how have you been feeling your creative bucket in the last year or two? Probably reading. Um, reading's always been where I get a lot of... Um, inspiration from I think that's probably my main thing and um going for walks I've done a lot of walking with your podcast listening to other writers <laughs> I think talking is always really um you know there's always something you get out of what other people say which is helpful um I've got a few online writing groups that I belong to where we just kind of chat about stuff and I think that's really helpful just finding other people that also care about writing is also really good I'd probably like to go back to a writing workshop now. I think I'm about ready to do that again. Yeah, that's good. And there's a comment yeah. uh, in the thread that says that on ABC last night, you know, they're saying that COVID is making our brains work differently, which I'm super interested in now. And I want to do a bit more yeah. about that. Has, I mean, it's hard to think about on the spot, I guess, but has the lockdown and the pandemic made you feel like you work or write in a different way or have you not had time to process that yet? We might come out of it in two years and go, oh, well, now I know. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, I think when it was really locked down here, I felt pretty uninspired and I felt quite gloomy. Um, 
and it wasn't great for writing really it was quite kind of um yeah just uninspiring and I actually I started reading for a literary journal here called Sand which is an English language journal and I just do some volunteer reading submissions and the fiction editor said the submissions that they got were the weirdest ones they'd ever seen they were either really uninteresting like people would just completely run out of ideas wow or they were really expensive wow that is yeah so I think it is definitely starting to affect people um but I don't I don't know what we'll see like it'll probably be a few years before we start seeing it hopefully not many books about the pandemic I don't think I can read and or listen to anything else about the pandemic no, I don't want to read anything about it. I just want to forget about it. After you hear the press conference, I don't want to hear anything about it for the rest of the day. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, done. exactly. Yeah. Now, I have heard, you know, as you said, you listen to my podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Um, but I've heard lots of writing advice, you know, about how you should write. And I've heard amazing things, you know, from language to structure to finding creativity to sitting in places you know that help you fill your bucket one of the best pieces of writing advice I heard was from Trent Dalton who said that unless you're going to put your heart and soul on the page what's the point and I love that because you know you can talk about structure and language and obviously they're very important things to you know want to need to write a book you need all that stuff but I think before any of that stuff you need to be really willing to be vulnerable and put your heart and soul yeah. on the page. And I think if you've read Boys Words Universe, you can see that heart and soul on the page. <laughs> if I wanted to ask you, what is the best writing advice you've ever heard or you've taken on board or you use or you've, you've discovered along your journey as a writer? So I think that's true, what he said. I think that's completely true. You have to be vulnerable on the page. You have to put your heart and soul into it. Definitely. And that's what will get published and that's what people want to read. I think readers know when you've done that. Um, But I think if you're going to do that, you have to also accept there's going to be a degree of anxiety and rejection and a lot of, you know, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. So you have to find other places in your life where you get to feel safe and comfortable and calm and maybe paid, you know, I think you need to find a balance. If you're going to do that with your writing, you also have to look after yourself in the rest of your life and find other things that kind of fill you up because it is it is kind of difficult to do that. No. Yeah, because vulnerability is important, but you probably can't be vulnerable all the time. No. So you have to kind of other stuff around you that makes you feel mm. not vulnerable. And then I think that actually helps your writing that allows you to be more vulnerable when you write. If there's other places where you feel kind of strong and resilient. That's a great point. We're going to add that to some of the best writing advice I've heard, Zoe. (laughs) Be vulnerable, not too vulnerable. Have a balance. (laughs) Also, weightlifting. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting one. Weightlifting, but maybe like, you know, yoga or something that just centre you into, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, meditation. The meditation works for me. Yeah. Sometimes absolutely. I need to meditate numerous times during the day for it to work, but hey. <laughs> yeah. I actually wanted to meditate this morning, but I didn't get time. But yeah, 
I might do it afterwards. <laughs> I heard I heard this thing which really resonated with me that said if you're too busy to do five minutes of meditation, you should be doing ten. <laughs> So true, right? Yeah. 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 Now we've got a. I've got a final question for you. And since you have walked around the block with my uh, podcast in your ears, you will know that this question is coming. So I want to know, Zoe, why do you write? Um, I think if I don't write, I start to feel like really like my brain's too full, and I get really kind of edgy. And then once I've written, I feel like I've kind of got space in my head and I kind of feel calm again. So it makes me feel good. Um, And I think I just like, it's just that creative edge. I think everyone's got it, you know. It might not be writing, it might be cooking or whatever. It's just that making something out of nothing that I enjoy. Yeah. And being present too. Because like I said, even when you compared it to cooking or writing, you have to be present. You can't be anything but present. And often in our lives, busy lives, social media, phones, etc. it's hard to be present. So I think those things, whatever they are, whether it's you go for a jog or a walk or write or cook, those things that make you present are things that sort of nurture you, aren't they, and make you make you strong, like you said. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's strong true. to be vulnerable. Beautiful quote. Strong to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful quote to finish us off. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, I loved this book. Love this cover so much. It's so beautiful. You can see it Thank here. You. <laughs> and it was just a fantastic uh, crime thriller, psychological thriller, whatever you're calling it. It was fantastic. It was refreshing. It was a little bit different. It made you think all these different things. And the tension in this was just fantastic. So I loved it. I love doing these interviews via live stream. I love A Shot in the Dark with Fremantle Press. So it's been an absolute privilege to speak to you dig deep about this book and you know also have our viewers chip in and talk to us as well so that's been really really fun and thinking about how far away we are geographically and still managing to have this awesome chat so yeah does it get any better really (laughs) so thank Thank you yeah Yeah. thank you thank you for being on the other side with all the questions you know some some I stuck to, some I threw away, which is pretty standard. <laughs> I think it afforded us a great chat. And obviously, thank you, Fremantle, for having me again and letting and trusting me to host these things. <laughs> but thank you so much, Zoe. It's been an absolute pleasure to um, read this and speak to you about it. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.